just want to say how much I appreciate the opportunity to be here with uh, the digital Bible study. Uh, I think this is a great tool for many in the church and uh, want, to, want to take that opportunity to thank uh, uh, Jonathan and, and Eric for the, the labor of love that they're giving to it, are putting into this. I know that's many hours uh, of, you know, hound dog and people. Hey, we need you to help out. We need you to help out. And we're so thankful that, that, that you guys are putting that much work into it. I want to take you back for just a moment. Uh, imagine that it's the year 2050 and the church is really starting to grow in the Roman world at that time. And it's being noticed, it, it appears, by the Roman Empire. There's a man by the name of uh, Trajan Decius, uh, and uh, he comes to power as a Roman emperor, the Caesar, uh, in four, 249. He fears the growing number of Christians who are, uh, he, as, he, as he views them, as being very unpatriotic and disloyal, that they're atheists, they promote incest and cannibalism. Uh, and so he says it's, it's time to uh, stamp out this growing movement. There's a little fear uh, toward the church. And so uh, he, he sets up these tests to prove loyalty to the empire. Among them are uh, uh, sacrificing to the Roman pagan gods and such things as uh, uh, pledging loyalty to Caesar, the emperor worship of the day, the emperor cult of the day. And uh, it, it really begins what is the first empire-wide persecution of the church. There had been persecution from pockets throughout the Roman Empire, but this is the first time uh, that the church has come under fire uh, throughout the empire, everywhere, uh, every corner of the empire. And so uh, during the, the two years, from about 250 to 251, uh, the, the uh, persecution just intensifies over and over and over again. And some Christians, of course, um, give in and they make the sacrifices and they pledge allegiance to the Roman emperor. And when they do so, they're, they're considered as the fallen or the lapsed. Not only were there those who were pledging allegiance to, to Caesar in order to save their lives, but others also bought falsified documents. There was a certificate that was required by Roman law that said that you had made the sacrifices or made the pledges to the emperor cult and uh, they would buy these documents and have them falsified or signed uh, as if they had done it even though they themselves had not made that pledge uh, but they had saved their lives by getting these false pledges so it was about 251 decius dies and the persecution dies with him things are, are canceled out and now those christians who held certificates of loyalty wanted to return back to the church. Those who had uh, uh, either made that pledge or else bought the certificates, either one, uh, they wanted back in. And there, were, uh, there was a division in the church over whether or not you allowed the lapse to enter into the church again. Novation, a famous church leader, was one of the rigorous ones who were, were staunchly against allowing the lapsed to come back into the church. Uh, he simply did not want to allow that to happen. After all, it was, it was a matter of church purity. Uh, and you think of those who had died in, in, their, uh, uh, in, in staying faithful, and yet here's someone who, in order not to die, in order to save their own skin, they, uh, they, have, they have made this pledge to Caesar. Caesar. They have uh, uh, offered the sacrifices that were wrong. And, and so in his mind, this was, you know, to keep the church pure, we can't allow them to come back in. On the other side, there was a man named Cornelius, among others, who was another church leader, 
and he fought to give the laps their forgiveness. Uh, what what they have done was was wrong. It was sinful, yes, but but we we welcome them back in, and that's that's where we want them to be. And so he fought for their forgiveness, and he argued that Peter, uh, who had denied Christ, uh, but he afterwards became a dominant church leader at the time. And so this really becomes a question of of who could be restored. Fast forward to a few years ago. In 2018, I was standing in the courtyard at Caiaphas' house where Jesus stood before the trial of the high priest from the balcony above, and you can look across the courtyard, and today there's uh, a sculpture commemorating the dramatic moment. In fact, I, I would say it's one of the most dramatic moments in all the Bible. And that, that statue commemorates the denial of Peter when he gathered in the courtyard. So tonight what I want to do is go back and join the commotion of that kangaroo court and uh, the court where Jesus was on trial. We stand in that courtyard below, mingling with the soldiers and the onlookers and warming ourselves really by their fires while an innocent man, our Lord Jesus, is abused by the guards, maligned by the priest, and yet offers no defense. What, what will be the fate of the innocent? What will be the fate of the guilty? So let's join Luke as the scene unfolds for us, beginning in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. And we're going to read two different paragraphs uh, that are disconnected, but connected in theme and thought. It really begins with a dreadful revelation, beginning in chapter 22 and verse 31. For the second time in Luke, we find Satan directly involved in the death of Jesus. The first time is when Satan enters into Judas, uh, that he would go out and, and, uh, and betray Jesus or make, make the uh, pact to betray Jesus. And so Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. The word demanded here carries the idea to ask or demand. Uh, BDAG says with the implication of having the right to do so. And we might say to ourselves, well, what right did Satan have to demand of Jesus his closest disciples? And I, I think here uh, we, we hear echoes of Job in our mind when, when Satan demanded Job's life in Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, when he had come back from walking to and fro on the earth and and God, you know, says, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, Satan says, yes, well, uh, the fact is you've built this hedge around him, this hedge of wealth and prosperity. And of course, he's not going to curse you. Take those things away and he'll curse you to your face. So God allowed Satan to afflict Job for the first time, take away his uh, prosperity and his posterity as well as children. And uh, he comes back in chapter two of Job, beginning in verse four, Again, God, God, God says, consider my servant Job. He gives the very same speech about Job. And then he adds, and, and, and all these things you afflicted him, and yet he did not curse me. So it's, it's amazing that here's Satan demanding Job. And that's kind of the same thing we see here with, with uh, Peter and Jesus, that, that Satan is demanding from Jesus Peter. And of course, you know why it would be Peter. He is that impetuous leader. He appears to be one of the, the leading leaders of the, the group of disciples. And man, if, if we can get the leader to fall, if we can get the number one to fall, 
and they'll all fall along with him. That was Satan's thought. And to him, it would be a coup. And he says that he, he says, I wish that I, or he demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And I think of that, that, that illustration or that image that comes to my mind of, of the winnow and the winnowing fan when they would take the, the grain that was on the, the, the floor and they would, they would toss it in the air. And uh, if you've ever been around wheat or many of the uh, cereal grains, they have, a, they have a kernel. And then on the outside of that kernel, there's a husk that grows. And of course, the husk itself is not edible, has no nutritional value, and it would dry and slough away. And as it would do that, they would, they would sift the grain in their, their shovels or their winnowing fork, and then they would, they would toss it in the air, and the winnowing fans would blow against it, and the, the husk would peel away and blow away with the breeze of the winnowing fan. At the same time, the, the kernel itself, that which was good, would, would fall back into uh, uh, the pile. And so that way they would, they would clean the wheat or the, the, the grains that they were, they were working with. And so what, what Satan is demanding, he says, I want, I want Peter. I demand Peter. And his intention was to upset his world and get his facade of faith to fall away. You see, Satan, he, he always has this uh, idea that, that our faith, our allegiance to God is a mere husk. It's a, it's a facade. And given duress, given temptation, given turmoil, then that facade of faith, that husk would, would simply... Uh, uh, fall away, and the real, the kernel of who we are would be left exposed. And so he wanted to sift him like wheat. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is, uh, uh, that, that Jesus, knowing what Satan is wanting to do, knowing that he is trying to sift him like wheat, knowing that he's trying to, to take his faith away and peel the true Peter out and show that this Peter is a, is a facade, that this Peter is a, 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 a fake person, that there's no authenticity to Peter's faith, the depth of his faith. So Jesus said, I prayed for you. And I, I just find that a, a wonderful statement, that Jesus is willing to pray for those who are his. And, and I believe Jesus continues to pray for us. Uh, if we are his, he continues to pray that that we ourselves might endure through the devil's sifting. Because I assure you, the devil continues to demand us. Peter is a little shocked at this, I think. And he says to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Prison or death. It doesn't matter which one it is. Both sound terrible, but Peter says, I'm ready to do whatever it takes. I'm, I've already made up my mind that I'm following you anywhere. And, and I like the phrase here. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. You see, Peter feels full confidence in the presence of Jesus. Sometimes when Jesus is far away or distant from Peter or the, the disciples, their fear comes in, their faith wanes. For example, in Matthew 14, verse 28, um, this is a, the account where, where Jesus and, and his apostles have been with a great crowd, and then Jesus sends the crowd away and tells his disciples to, to go across the sea. So they get in a boat, and they're, they're going across the sea. But Jesus stays on the shore. In fact, it says that he goes to a mountain, and he's praying on the mountain. And at some point during the night, the, the, the storm rolls in. 
And the disciples are just terrified. They're afraid. Now, it's interesting to me because in Matthew 14, uh, you know, they're, they're afraid. But in Matthew chapter 8, they're probably in the same boat on the same sea and a similar storm has kicked up. And they're afraid, but Jesus is asleep in the boat and all they have to do is wake Jesus up. Lord, do you care that we're perishing? Why are you sleeping? And so they wake Jesus up. But Jesus isn't in the boat anymore. They can't just wake up a sleeping Savior. He's not even here. And so their faith drains out like water from a, from a sink. And, and as they're, they're, they're in this fear, Jesus, of course, comes walking to them on the water. And, and they don't even know it's him. And so they're still afraid until he tells them, it's me, it's me. Now, you remember once they find out that it's Jesus, uh, uh, Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, if it truly is you, command me or bid me to come to you on the water. I mean, that's a, that's a great faith. I mean, this faith that had, had drained out of them when Jesus was far away, uh, now that Jesus is back, it seems that his confidence is rebolstered. Uh, think about uh, John chapter 18 and verse 10, whenever uh, uh, the, the, when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter draws his sword and, and strikes off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. You know, this is a man who is in great confidence because Jesus is right there beside him. He knows this is what Jesus must want. He's, he is the Messiah. And so he, you know, here's Peter in, in the presence of Jesus. I'll go with you to death or prison with you. The great question is, is what will you do when he's not with you? What will you do when he is distant? Jesus then reveals to Peter, I tell you, Peter, that the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. You're going to deny that you know who I am, that you are, that you are with me or a follower of me three times before the morning comes. It must have come as a shock to Peter to hear Jesus say that he would fail the test of faith. Maybe that's why he drew a sword in the garden. You know, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. In, in just a matter of minutes, they're going to be, uh, uh, the, the, you know, Judas will come with the arresting officers and this cadre of soldiers. And, and Peter's going to draw his sword and he's going to make that blow against Malchus. And maybe that's why he drew that sword is to show his full allegiance. Look, I'm ready. I'm not going to deny you. I'm here. But then again, he was right next to Jesus. Beyond this, there seems to be more of a, a selfish response from Peter. Uh, and when we, we think about uh, uh, verse 54, one of the things that I notice, it says they, they seized him, talking about Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now, see, we, we see that, that phrase, at a distance. And remember, he says, when I'm with you, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to, go to, I'm ready to die. But at a distance, what's left? Some people look at Peter and what they see is fear. Fear. Peter is afraid to admit that he knows who Jesus is. Uh, he, he's, he's there in the courtyard with the soldiers and those who are putting him on trial. And uh, so uh, Peter's afraid. 
but I do find it interesting that the, Peter, the text never says Peter is afraid in these moments. Maybe he is, but I think there's something else happening here. I think that, that the distance that uh, uh, we see of Peter is really a, a representation of faith. And, I, and it, maybe, maybe you've noticed this in your own life or the lives of those that you love. But, but, but faith oftentimes, we're very tight with God, but it's sometimes through circumstances, through uh, uh, a, a lack of, of attention, our faith will, will start to draw apart and we, we stretch it rather thinly. And then as, as we stretch, then you know, maybe we, we hear a sermon or, or we meet someone in the store, or someone reminds us of our faith and, and we grow back closer to God. But our, our faith tends to do this. It stretches at times and snaps back and stretches at other times and snaps back. And, and I think what's happening with Peter is that his faith is stretching thin in this moment. That, that really, to me, I, I, is, is what I see more than, than fear. You know, Peter demonstrated his loyalty in the garden with the sword, and, and then Jesus rebuked him. You know, here's Peter. Remember, I'm ready to die with you. And the Lord said, no, no, we're not doing that. Jesus rebuked him. Peter's ready to fight, and Jesus, whom he'd followed for over three years now, is ready to just give up. I'm wondering if doubt is starting to set in on Peter. You know, sometimes when, when we've done something for a long period of time, uh, we, just, we just keep doing it out of habit because we're afraid to actually let it go. Even when it's over, we don't want to let it go. But Peter appears to be draw, you know, drawing thin, and, and the doubt is setting in in his life. Maybe this really isn't the Messiah. After all, there were other messiahs contemporary with Jesus, or people who claimed they were messiahs anyway. And Peter, no doubt, had heard of them, maybe even talked to them and run into, run into them at some point. But he, he always thought they were the false ones, and the one he was following was true. But what if, what if Jesus is not true? The servants and the officers, are, they've made fires. When they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, it says that Peter sat down among them. A relative of Malchus, the man whose right ear was cut off, was, was, was sitting there with them. According to John 18, 26, Peter, Peter is right now in, in the lion's den. He's in the dragon's lair. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound like someone who's afraid? You know, people who are afraid don't put themselves right in the, the dragon's lair. They run away. They hide. Peter's not hiding. But I think Peter's not hiding because he truly believes, or he truly is in doubt. He is pulling away more than just mere fear. He goes through the, uh, the denials. Uh, when they they're saying, you know, look, uh, you're one of them. You're one of them. You're one of them. And he keeps saying, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. In fact, that statue in the courtyard today, uh, non novi illum. Uh, I do not know him. I know not. And so uh, uh, he he's saying these, and that, that third time. Uh, as soon as he has said it, it says in the text in, in, in chapter 
uh, chapter 22, verse 60, at least the second part of that verse, it says, And immediately, immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The emphasis is on the, the sequence and the, the shortness, the brevity of time between Peter saying, Man, I do not know what you're talking about at the beginning of verse 60. And immediately the rooster crowed. It's often used, this idea of the immediate use for being caught unaware or an abruptness. No sooner had the words left Peter's mouth than right? the rooster crows. Rather shocking. And the sound must have pierced his heart like the beast of that demon bird itself. One of the most heartbreaking moments comes in verse 61, 62. When he says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The trial, the trial was a predetermined formality as far as the Jewish leaders were, were concerned. And there was nothing that Jesus could do or say that would avert the travesty that was awaiting him. In fact, just earlier in chapter 22, verse 53, Jesus would said to them, or said to them, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this, this is your hour and the power of darkness. There's nothing Jesus could have done in this moment to save himself, but... There was something Jesus could do in this moment to rescue Peter. And he turned and he locked eyes with Peter as he was denying him. And then it says in verse 62 that after Peter has remembered what the Lord had said about him denying him three times, it says he went out and he wept bitterly. Now me, thinking about this moment in history, I cannot fathom the pain and the shame that he felt as Jesus locked eyes with him from the balcony. The tightness in his chest, the lump in his throat, as his faith was stretching to its very breaking point, and then looking at Jesus and that look, that look from the Savior, <laughs> proved once again the deity of Christ. That Jesus knew, not, not just in that moment, but knew hours before that that moment was going to take place. That showed that he knew what was in the hearts of man. He knew what was coming. And when I think about it, I wonder often, did, when Jesus locked eyes with Peter, were there tears coming down his eye, from his eyes? Was he heartbroken? I think that he was. I don't think that the look that he gave Peter was one of anger, like, you know, how could you deny me in my hour of need? I don't think it was a look like, I told you so. You're doing exactly what I told you you were going to do. But the look I see on my Savior's face is one of compassion, one of sorrow, deep, heartbreaking sorrow, but not, not for his trial. It, it's sorrow really for Peter. That's where his sorrow lies. So what does this mean for us? What does all this boil down to? How does our own faith stretch and groan and 
and border on the brink of breaking apart completely? How often does it lapse in times of trial when there's an opportunity to speak of the grace of God, to tell others of, of His life and what He offers? And yet in those moments we, of trial and discomfort and weakness, we readily give up. I'm afraid that it's, it's not going to be like in the days of Decius, where persecution is at a, a high degree and that causes a lot of people to lapse and lose their faith. I don't think the devil uses that as much as he uses today. Convenience and the desire to fit in and entertainment, our relationships. Not necessarily to pull us away from Christ, but simply to lull us to sleep, to get us to let down our guards in those moments. You've got to ask yourself, and just like I've got to ask myself, what is it that would cause me uh, to slip away? Or maybe more specifically, what has caused me to slip away? When did my faith stretch so thin that it broke? But to me, here's the greatest part of the entire affair. It's the greatest part of, of all of this. Remember, in verse 32, Satan demanded and Jesus prayed over Peter. I have prayed, he says, that, you may, that your faith may not fail. However, Jesus knew that, that Peter would allow Satan to win. We often talk about the two votes that are cast. You know, there's one for us and one against us. And then we have to cast the deciding vote. Well, look at the context here. Peter, you know, Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you. There's one vote. And, and then the second vote is Jesus said, I prayed for you. So the devil and Jesus have cast the first two votes. And now it's up to Peter to make that, that deciding vote. And, and sadly, when we read the story, he, he, he voted against himself. He revealed this, this doubting, this lack of faith. But Jesus still prays for us. Jesus knows that we're going to face times of, of great struggle, distress, where our faith will, will, will wear thin, and He's praying. He's praying earnestly, and He's hoping. But in the same way, the devil still makes demands of us. I demand Sam. I demand this Christian. God, they only follow you because you bless them in a certain way. You take away those blessings and they'll curse you. No. I demand these people. And that's, that's bad. And we, we look at that and we say, oh, that's terrible news, you know, that, that we're going to face trials and tribulations and temptations and sometimes we're going to fail. Fail just like Peter did and deny Christ. Maybe not in so many words like, I don't know what you're talking about. But you know there are times in your life, I know there are times in mine, where I did not hold faith like I should have. But here's the thing that Jesus knew. He knew Peter would come back. Notice what he says. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Was it the rooster's crow? Peter's heart? 
the Savior's look that, that finally got Peter to, to shake out of his stupor of doubt, come back in faith? I don't know. Probably a combination of all three of them. That's like us. Sometimes we fall away. And sometimes we run away as fast as we can. We're tired of this life. We're tired of living this way under the threat of hell. That's the way a lot of people look at Christianity. Sometimes sin just sneaks up on us and bites us. Galatians 6 and verse 1, you who are overtaken in a fault. That happens. But here's, here's the amazing part of the entire story is that no matter what has led us astray, no matter what sin we've committed, no matter how long it's been, Jesus still wants me. He wants to use me. Notice he says to Peter, even when you have denied me, and you, but you're going to turn again. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. I've got a job for you, Peter. I can still use you, Peter. Your faith can still be here. So what are you struggling with? Has it convinced you that you're not good enough? That God surely doesn't want someone like you? Let me tell you something. You're wrong. You're dead wrong. God does want you. And God can use you. Because He loves you. And the question is, is will you give yourself to Him so He can use you? Appreciate you listening in tonight. Hopefully this revisiting of Peter in the courtyard, the denials that he had, and yet the, the welcoming that Christ was ready to give him when you turn again. And maybe in your life, you've fallen away. Your, your faith is, is that like Peter's, it has, it has stretched thin. And maybe it's broken. It's snapped apart. But look, Jesus is waiting for you to turn again. Maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe, maybe you've been thinking about this Christianity thing for a little while. Uh, I want you to contact someone. Uh, contact Jonathan or Eric or uh, someone else at Digital Bible Study. Contact someone at the Church of Christ in your area. Find out, find out what the Bible wants you to do, what God wants you to do revealed in His Word. Would you take just a moment to pray with me as we close out? Our Holy Father, we are blessed to be called Your children, but even more blessed that that you want every single person on this earth, those who have obeyed the gospel to become that child, but those who have, who have yet to do so, but have that opportunity in this moment, and those that, that have done it and yet fallen away. Father, it's, it's just amazing to me that you could want everyone, no matter how bad their sins may have been, how long ago or how near they are, that anyone who is willing to repent of those sins and turn away from a life and an attitude that's just mildly accepting of whatever sins they have. To rather see sin as the detriment that it is, the spiritual disfigurement of our lives. Put away those sins. Come to you in submission, doing whatever it takes. They've never obeyed the gospel, that they might be baptized for the remission of their sins. If they have obeyed the gospel, that they simply confess those sins and receive the grace that you hold out willingly, lovingly, longingly, that they would receive it. Father, we pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.